Hi, Carl. How are you? I'm doing fine. How about you? Have you recovered from your COVID? Um, not quite, but I think I'm getting there. Yeah, <laughs> just just feeling a bit flu-like. All right. <clears throat> I've been fortunate in not having really any side effects. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> there Still all a... worth it. All worth it. So. Yes, I think so. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, welcome to uh, this podcast, A Life in Biography. We're going to be talking about your new book on... Sylvia Plath and Ann Sexton and their three martini lunches. But before we get to that, you know, there used to be this popular program on American television called This Is Your Life, where they would surprise someone and bring on guests, you know, from that person's life. And uh, it was really kind of fascinating to watch. So we're not going to go into that kind of detail <laughs> on, your, on your life. But tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you how you got to Sylvia Plath? Um, well, I got to Sylvia Plath uh, very unexpectedly and purely by accident, really, when I was 13 years old. And I was just at school and we had a lesson where our regular teacher hadn't turned up. And so I don't know if it's called the same in America, but over here you get a supply teacher. Yeah, they're called substitute teachers here. Right, okay, yeah. yeah. So we were kind of thrown into the school library and just told to read a book for an hour. And I, I remember, I mean, it, it's kind of like, I suppose when you look back, these things seem very cinematic, but it was a very stormy afternoon. It was very gothic. There was a black sky. I was looking out the library window, bored, uh, and I wandered over to the poetry section, pulled off a book. It was um, Sylvia Plath, opened it, read it, and that was me done after that. Um, <laughs> and so uh, it, she's never left me since then. So that's how, that's how I came about um, Plath. But it also, I mean, I think it's quite interesting that that discovery at 13 coincided with quite a lot of other things that happened at that time. It seemed a very formative year for me. And, you know, it was the year that I, I discovered Plath. I discovered environmentalism. Uh, I, you know, I stopped eating animals. And so there, there was a lot going on for me in that year, I think. And she seemed to be the kind of important, pivotal thing in, in that moment for me. I think that's true of a lot of readers of Sylvia Plath and, and also uh, those of us who, who write about her, that there's, there's something in her writing that opens up certain areas of the world that we weren't aware of or not as aware of as we should be. Uh, and it's, it's, I've used this word for her before, uh, and it's one I like to use because people often uh, think about the end of her life as if that defines her. And yet, for me, she's always been such a liberating figure. Absolutely, yeah. And I think she, I think she not only connects people, but I think she connects ideas in your head as well. So I, I find her a very, she's very liberating, but she's a very connective force as well. And that makes her, for me, you know, a really powerful figure. Yes, yes. I just, uh, I'm going to be reviewing a biography of Ethel Rosenberg. And of course, there's the mention of Rosenberg in the bell jar. Uh, mm. But what, what, what thrilled me about reading this Ethel Rosenberg biography is it begins with talking about Sylvia Plath's, you know, um, reference to Rosenberg at the beginning of the bell jar. And then uh, at the end, in the epilogue, there's even more about Plath. And I thought, this is fantastic. You know, mm -hmm. readers from very different areas of, of life, of literature, of history, 
are seeing this in her, seeing her, you know, people uh, mistakenly, I think, label her, you know, a confessional poet, uh, that sort of thing. And yet, you know, as Heather Clark said, for instance, the Bell Jar, it's, it, it is a political novel. It's a protest novel. It's so much more uh, than, than just um, uh, a, what people call it, you know, a semi-autobiographical book. That kind of mm. really narrows it in a way that, that shouldn't be done. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, I think it covers all sorts of politics too, you know, not just kind of global politics and party politics, but That's right. very strongly gender politics too. And oh, yeah. um, so, uh, but but does it with a um, with a certain amount of uh, humour and charm and uh, and yet somehow still manages to be very serious too. That's right, yeah. Now, the book we're going to be discussing shortly is not your first book on class. So tell us a little bit about what, what occurred before then. Um, sorry, which book? Uh, the, the books about Plath that you, you wrote, the one with Peter Steinberg, for example. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, my first book um, on Plath was uh, co-authored with Elizabeth Sigmund. Yes. And that was called um, A Year's Turn in Sylvia Plath in Devon. And th that idea came about because um, Elizabeth wanted to write um, a, a kind of memoir about the time that she had known Plath. And she wanted me to uh, accompany that by writing uh, a sort of biography of that year that she knew Plath. And so we, we worked together on that. And um, that was, as you can imagine, utterly delightful, um, yeah. as Elizabeth was herself. So. Yeah, she's a wonderful, she was a wonderful person. Uh, oh, so fabulous. generous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fabulous. So that, yeah, so that was my first, first book on Plath. And then, uh, you know, three others have, have followed. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. One of the things that interests me about your work, and I mentioned in my, my review of the, of the Plath and Sexton book, is your work in archives and what you think archives have to contribute to, uh, to the study of Plath and, of course, other figures as well. Well, I think archives are important um, for a number of reasons. Um, the first one is because it's always important to use primary material whenever it's possible because it's so revealing in so many ways. Um, but I think for me as a writer, um, archives are important because you feel um, a sense of connection to the person that you're researching there's something particularly poignant and particularly powerful about handling manuscripts and handling personal possessions and seeing a kind of, um, you know, the way in which people live their lives day to day, uh, what was written on their calendars. I mean, you'll, you'll know about this because you're working on this yourself right now and you'll yes. be a path day by day. So it's that kind of immersing yourself into somebody's life. And I think when you're in an archive and you're handling things that they touched and things that they handled and you you get a much stronger sense of them than, for example, reading secondary sources. And that for me is, is really important. And, and it was especially important for me with Anne Sexton in this new book because I wasn't hugely familiar with Anne Sexton and uh, I was quite nervous about going to her archive because I thought, you know, will it feel like Plath's feels? And um, and it did because it's really hard not to connect. I think when you're 
when you're, you know, faced with all of this amazing material and not just written material, but audio material as well, and photographs and typewriters and hair and all of these things that just help build up this picture of who this person was. And, and uh, I'm sure you've had this experience. It's one I've had often in archives. You read this, of course, you read the, the uh, if there have been previous biographies or critical studies and so on of the author. But then when you go into that archive and when you see the variety of material, and this is especially true of Platt, you realize all the stuff that's been left out. Absolutely, yeah. And also, I think that's true Um even if you make repeat visits yourself to the yeah. same archive, and you, you realize what you missed first time around. Um, because it, it's just such a, it's a sensory overload. And so I think it's quite easy to, you know, maybe if you're going with a particular focus in mind and you're looking for something, um, it's easy to, to overlook other things. And so, um, or sometimes I can read something that's written on an archive that I've been to and, and think, I didn't see that. I didn't notice that. So, you know, it's, it, I think it's great that so many people are accessing and using archives. And I think it's great that we also have the, you know, the chance to, to revisit them as well. One of the great things about Smith College is not just their Plath archive, but the fact that they've opened it up to students, to undergraduates who can also yeah. get this primary <laughs> sense of Plath uh, that otherwise would, would not be available to them. Uh, Definitely. Um, and the, the, the other thing that I love about Smith College is their absolute openness about, you know, yes. being able to take photographs when you're there and being able to do what you want with the photographs when you've left, you know, as long as you're not uh, breaking any copyright. And, and it's a real, it feels like there's a real kind of, um, you know, trying to make this material as open and accessible as possible to so many people. And I think that's so important because that's really why archives exist, you know, to, to preserve this stuff and, and allow people to see it. And so, you know, I love to be able to post photographs from archives on social media because it's like, you know, not only is it great, but this is for everyone. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, it's what I, I guess the, the last thing I want to say about archives is it's a kind of archaeology. <laughs> If you think of an archaeologist and an excavation who's brushing off, you know, some shard of pottery or utensil or something else that was used by somebody else, in a way, we do that in archives. We're peeling back the layers and we're looking at things. And uh, as you say, when you come back to it again and again, as, as archaeologists to, to, to a site, an archaeological site, you're discovering new things all the time. I think that's true. And I also think it's about you know, constructing a hole from the rubble of somebody's yeah. life as well. So you're you're putting all of these different pieces together. And, you know, with Plath, that can be across a number of different archives in a number of different countries. And so it's pulling all of this material, all of this, all of these remnants together to, to create or even recreate um, as much of a whole as we can. Although, of course, that's a little bit of a myth, I think. You know, we can never fully, you know, recreate someone. And there's always a certain amount of bias, I guess, involved in that. <clears throat> and sure. that we're, we're building and creating, uh, plathing it, you know, kind of in our own image. But um, nevertheless, it's, a, it's always, always wonderful to go to an archive and it's always really exciting even if it's quite a, 
you know, even if you don't find anything hugely brilliant or illuminating, it's always a real privilege to handle this stuff. That's right. Yeah, yeah. There's almost like a, a sense of awe. I think of that scene in Citizen Kane where, you know, it's it's just the, the, the almost being admitted to this inner sanctum and looking at these documents. Yeah. I think, yeah, there is that sense of, sense of, of, of privilege that, that you have. The other thing you do in your book um, uh, is read one life in terms of another, in a sense, by putting together Plath and Sexton. You know, it goes all the way back to Plutarch, who first did this, you know, with parallel lives. Um, how, did you, how did you decide on that? Why Plath and Sexton? Well, I think they're, <coughs> excuse me, two quite natural people to put together in a way, and also because they knew each other. Um, but I was really fascinated about, and with something very enigmatic about this idea that their lives collided for such a brief period of time. So these two kind of massive figures of 20th century poetry had these few months where they were meeting once a week and drinking martinis at the Ritz. And then you know, I was quite interested in what, what was the sort of ripple effect from that, what happened from those meetings, and and just kind of exploring a little bit more in detail about uh, the cultural moment that they met, the cultural moment that they both lived in and grew up in, uh, the cult cultural moment that they died in. And so the book was really, I mean, I know it, it's called a, a dual biography, but I, I always think of myself first and foremost as a as a sociologist, not a not a biographer. Although I guess you can be a biographer and a sociologist. So <laughs> it's very much about kind of um, you know what what was significant for them at that moment when when they were meeting, and 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 the kind of um, uh, struggles and triumphs that they had during that time. Well, I think you're mentioning the fact that you're a sociologist is what sort of enhances what you're contributing to to biography in, in the sense that uh, people sometimes treat these biographers as a tendency in biography uh, and readers of biography to treat these figures in isolation. And you're mm -hmm. connecting them back together. You're providing the cultural context. When you do get to talk about um, their suicides, and we, we should talk about that at some point, too you're pointing out that they weren't the only women doing this. Uh, no. That it's happened at a, you know, at a particular moment in history when women were feeling certain things and reacting to certain things in the culture, which is a very different thing from psychologizing Plath or Sexton and say, oh, they were doomed figures, you know, they were this, they were that, they were victims, and so mm -hmm. on. When you take that broader view, what might be called a sociological view, uh, viewing the, the 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 individual in the context of a culture, it looks quite different. I think it really does, yeah. And I think also it's it. I mean, the thing that that struck me, you know, I'd been researching and writing about Plath for many years, and just sh shifting the lens a little bit to think about her in terms of in what ways was she a rebel, and then setting that against. Her cultural moment made me appreciate her all over again in terms of really how rebellious she was. I mean, we tend to we tend to take for granted that 
particularly those aerial poems, you know, are very powerful, very outspoken, was something very new for that time. And yet I was just, um, you know, it, it really, really struck me when I was doing this, how both <clears throat> Sexton and Plath, just what they took on uh, in order to become the, the poets that they came. And Sexton especially, I think, was her correspondence that's held in the Harry Ransom Center at Austin, the University of Texas. It's just, you know, you read letter after letter after letter where she's writing about, well, this male poet is getting paid this to do exactly <laughs> the same reading. Why am I not get paid paid the, you know, the same amount? Or in fact, I've won more awards. So why am I not getting paid more? Because I'm worth more than him. And she's like this one woman activist for equal pay. And she, you know, she doesn't let it go. And then she also does this amazing thing of setting her expenses really high. <laughs> you know, so she'll say, yeah, oh, you know, she'd be invited to do a reading. And she's like, yes, I, I, I'd love to come and do a reading. Um, you know, and that'll be $2,000 for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they're like, we can't afford that. And she's like, oh, that's bad luck for you because I'm really worth it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just love that sort of, um, yeah. you know, that energy. And even if there was a little bit of bravado in that, you know, I mean, her whole take was, well, you know, I, I am worth it. And if somebody wants me that badly, they'll pay for me. Well, you have to wonder, you know, we don't know specifically what those conversations were between Plath and Sexton, but but everything I know about Sexton from your book and, and uh, other books as well, uh, just to be in her company was, was going <clears> to <throat> be exhilarating and challenging and make you think about, you know, the decisions you made and asserting yourself, all of those things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think as well, uh, I mean, Sexton hints at this in, in her memoir about meeting Plath, you know, that <clears throat> the more martinis they consumed, the, the louder they got, <laughs> the more intense they got. Uh, I yeah. think that would be a, a very fun afternoon to sit in with those two. That's right, yeah. You mentioned earlier that this meeting between the two uh, over a few months uh, created a ripple effect. I was interested in that term. What you think the the ripple effect was? Well, I think that they probably influenced each other um, in, in their writing. Uh, initially with that, with, with those first meetings in 1959, I think Sexton's impact on Plath was a bit more profound than the other way around. And I think that Plath's influence on Sexton came later um, after, after Sexton had read the aerial poems. Uh, and I, I feel that the ripple effect was very much that even during their lifetimes, their voices were regarded as quite troubling and quite troublesome. You know, they were saying things that hadn't really been said before. They were sending poems out that were <clears throat> shocking and annoying male editors of certain journals and publications. And I think that that outspoken, troubling female voice still ripples through time I, I you know I think I think Plath and Sexton are still regarded as quite troublesome figures in certain areas and we still get certain readings of them that are unhelpful and that are misogynistic that stigmatize mental illness and suicide that stigmatize readers of Plath and Sexton and all of those narratives are still going on today they're still rippling through time and I think it's quite exciting to see increasing scholarship that's challenging that.
and and trying to change the narrative into something a little bit different. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, maybe we should talk. You should talk a little bit more about um, mental illness and suicide and how that figures in your book and your your attitude toward it and treating these two figures. Well, I think I wanted to um, <clears throat> again put their put their suicides into. Uh, context of the rest of their lives and to not read their lives backwards and that was really important to me because I think if you read <clears throat> Plath and Sexton through their suicides and, and almost you know use that as the framework in which you enter their lives you get a very different story than if you read it the other way around <clears throat> and I think reading it the other way around is quite important because that's how they lived their lives you know they didn't live their lives thinking I'm doomed and I'm going to kill myself you know that isn't how they lived and they both had a huge um joy of life and they both had moments that were many moments that were you know happy and fulfilling and satisfying and like all of us you know also had their troubles, their anxieties, their down moments. So it's not about try. It's not trying to pretend that mental illness didn't play a part in their lives, but it's about trying to get some perspective on it and and put it in in you know it was one part of their lives that was happening, and there were lots of other things going on in their lives as well. And so I I think that the other thing that I wanted to do in the book as well was just look at the treatment of their mental illness and. I try and get a sort of a more multi-dimensional approach to it as well and think about because they're so pathologized you know well you know were there other things going on that might have contributed to their mental health and their mental illness and so I looked at things like their early years their upbringing their relationship with their mother certain traumas that they had both been through and just tried to build up a slightly bigger picture of what might have been going on which I think you have to be careful about doing because I think trying to diagnose people posthumously is a is a terrible thing to do um but you know we can also look at what was going on and you know it would very much seem that the treatment that they both received um for their depression was probably as bad if not worse as the depression itself Yes, that's I was going to get to that point. I think one of the really interesting uh, parts of your book is is the mishandling, the mistreatment, uh, the really uh, insensitive um, view of what these women were going through. I think certainly for Plath, I mean, when you talk about the end of her life and her suicide, one of the things she's thinking about is, what it means to be institutionalized, you know, and mm. how botched that whole uh, uh, treatment can be. Uh, I mm. think that was a real factor for her. Yeah, and I think just a level of irresponsibility as well. <clears throat> and I know that um, I mention it in the book as well, that uh, Anne Sexton's daughter, Linda Gray Sexton, told me that, you know, after her mother's death, when they were clearing out her house, they found these huge jars of pills that mm. had been prescribed to her mother. And, you know, she was saying, like, what psychiatrist prescribes that amount of pills to somebody who is saying they're suicidal? 
you know, who does that? And it's just that that irresponsibility around, um, I don't know whether it was, I don't know what it was. Was it lack of understanding? Was there some sexism in there as well? I mean, just this, you know, trying well, yes. drugs on people. I mean, you know, it's, it, it, it reads like a little bit of a horror story. And yet you think these are two women and there would have been thousands, tens of thousands more that would have been subjected to this too, you know, who, who suffered that, who went through that, who, who were presumably traumatised by that, certainly Plath with her botched ECT, you know, that was a trauma that, that stirred with her. And so we have to think, you know, that has to have contributed in some way to um, how they themselves viewed their mental health. That's <laughs> right. And I think that that uh, in Plath's case, for example, that personal trauma, the, the electroshock treatments, um, she thought about not only what they did to her, but in a sense, what that kind of shocking of a woman uh, means for society, the society in which she lives, which, you know, leads me back to Ethel Rosenberg, who was, electrocuted. Mm, yeah. you know, Plath, Plath sort of knew what it, what it felt like to be electrocuted. Yeah. And again, I mean, that kind of links up to our earlier point, you know, Plath is a connected figure. She makes connections all over the place and she helps people make connections. And that's a great example of, of when she was doing that. Yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> now, both, both of these women had just a, um, powerful sense of themselves you know you talk about them as as rebels and i think to be a rebel you have to have this self-confidence this powerful sense of yourself and at the same time they don't have said in my review of your book on simplycharlie.com they don't have the infrastructure that most men do in order to support that sense of their own selfhood absolutely yeah and i think this is especially true, you know, at the moment that they met in 1959. It It's still, however often I think about it, it still stuns me that these two women were operating, you know, before the advent of second wave feminism. And there just wasn't the platform for them to, you know, have the, the voices that, that they ended up having. But also they were... And, and again, I think the book Three Martinez, you know, looks at this tension that's going on between all of the ways in which they were re rebelling against their cultural moment and all the ways in which it seemed the ideology that they had been imbued with from birth was almost too powerful for them to pull away from. And, you know, so that, you know, they do agonise over their roles as as mothers and as wives. And, uh, and there seems to be this constant... Uh, push-pull going on between them, you know, just how far they're willing to feel they have a right to their own time, their own career, and to um, exercise their own talent against <clears throat> societal expectations of that's a selfish thing to do and they shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, that the, there are all those different uh, pressures that they, they have to either rebel against or conform to or balance uh, mm. it's, it's they're they're very complicated lives. They are, and I think Sexton was <clears throat> was a bit bolder at doing that than Plath. I mean, I think she was just more confident about taking time for herself. Um, whereas Plath, 
you know, with her perfectionism, wanted to just be brilliant at everything and manage everything and organise everything, which, of course, must have been, a, a, you know, a terrible strain. You know, I think of them together. Uh, they both grew up in Wellesley. Yeah. And yet mm -hmm. they didn't know each other. And then meeting so much later in life, my God, what they must have, you know, talked about just in terms of their their own backgrounds and the fact that they were in proximity to one another and yet never met. Yeah, and I mean, Sexton's really funny about that because she, you know, she, oh, if Plath had known me at school, she'd have hated me. I was <laughs> chasing around with boys and smoking and drinking and, uh, and far from the greatest student that Plath was. So I think Sexton was quite relieved they met later on. Yeah, yeah, I think it made for a much better meeting actually. Uh, in some ways, maybe Plath was more prepared to, to um, uh, accept is not the right word, but, but certainly to react or respond to someone like Sexton uh, as she herself had gathered you know, more experience. Uh, Sexton you know, could be looked upon as a kind of alternative model. Couldn't, Plath couldn't be Anne Sexton, but she could certainly learn certain things from her, that's for sure. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, I think Plath writes about that quite openly in her journal as well. Yeah, that's right. She quite likes Sexton's, I think she says, ease of phrase and openness and just being a bit more slangy and relaxed in, in her poems. That's right. So what are you going to do next? Have you figured it out? Um, yes, I, I'm working on another book at the moment. Um, unfortunately, I can't quite talk about it yet because okay. it hasn't been officially announced, but I am working on another book. Well, that's um, good. You know, we like to have a sense of suspense in these podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Wait for the big reveal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so whenever you're ready to be revealed, we can do another podcast. That sounds fabulous. Is there anything I should have asked you, Gail? I don't think so, no. Um oh. I, I just, um, yeah, if, if people read the book, uh, I hope they enjoy it. And obviously I'm on Twitter and Instagram. And so if anybody has any questions, they can contact me on that. That's marvelous. Yeah, people really do like to contact authors and they like that sense of conversations. That's what I like to do too. So yeah. Yeah, and I love hearing from readers. So yeah, feel free to contact me. Yeah, and, and I have to say, I don't know if this has been your experience with readers, I often get insights and responses that you never get in the professionally published reviews, and that, that's a whole other subject in itself. Definitely, yeah, absolutely. And of course, you can't control um, how, how people re respond to what you've written, so it really is Roland Barthes' death of the author, you send your work out there and people will do what they will with it. And so that can be terrifying in, in one sense. Um, but I have to say, most people have been absolutely lovely um, about well, the book. And so, um, you know, it's always really nice to hear uh, people's views and ideas on it. Yes. So let's hear from you, dear readers. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much, Gail. And, no, uh, thanks for having me on, Carl. Yes, and I, I'll be posting this podcast shortly. Okay. So, bye-bye uh, for now. Okay, thanks, Carl. Bye. Bye-bye.